Hey everyone, welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Rusty. Our guest today is Steve Cuss. Steve is one of the leading voices on anxiety and leadership in the United States. His platform, Capable Life, is growing, while his book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, has become a go-to resource for managers of capital and volatile markets and any leader who struggles with anxiety. Steve grew up in Perth, Western Australia, and came to the United States to study theology. He holds a Master of Divinity from Emmanuel Christian Seminary and is a spiritual care professional in the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. His professional journey began as a trauma and hospice chaplain, where he quickly learned that in order to help people in the worst moments of their lives, he had to know what was bubbling under the surface in himself, his fears, his assumptions, his exhaustion, and even his anger. If he didn't, those things would affect his ability to connect with people when they needed it the most. The counterintuitive life lesson here, to deeply connect to God and others, we must connect to ourselves first. Steve has served at a large church in Las Vegas, as a chaplain at a level one trauma hospital, on a ranch for struggling teens, and as a youth minister in the Appalachian region. Since 2005, he has served as lead pastor of Discovery Christian Church in Broomfield, Colorado. He joins us today to discuss how entrepreneurs can go from being managed by anxiety to managing their anxiety in healthy and productive ways. Let's listen in. One thing that we get to do that no other creature on the planet can do is that we get to add value by creating things. And I went from $40 million in revenue to watching everything that I had built for God get sold. Good morning. Has it been a long night? You've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. I sold my company and I really had a hard time getting out of bed. Maybe been a long year, maybe been a hard life, maybe you're not alright. Faith-driven entrepreneurs to do what they want to do have to understand what God has given them. There's winners and learners, not winners and losers. I feel like I was chosen to be on this show for a reason and I had to do something. Like we are addicted to comfort. And he's called me into really difficult positions. That's what he's told me to walk into. People like you, people like me. This is where we all find grace. Come on now. Entrepreneurship can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. This podcast and the whole ministry seeks to equip you, the faith-driven entrepreneur, to seize the unique opportunities that God has placed in front of you and overcome the challenges that life will throw your way. These are the stories of how he takes broken things and makes them new. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm here with Rusty and with William. We've got a great guest with us. Steve Cuss is with us. And Steve, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, absolutely, Henry. Thanks for having me on. What we're going to be talking about today, anxiety and leadership, is incredibly important. I can't say that every single topic we talk about on the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast is relevant for everybody in our audience, and yet I know that this is one that it is. And it makes me think of 
some of my favorite times on the podcast. We've had, I don't know, 250 episodes or so, but two of my favorite episodes are kind of these bookends to the world of anxiety. And we had Phil Vischer on maybe podcast 18 or 20 or something like that. And if you find that podcast for our listeners between minute 16 and minute 20, he goes through and he talks about anxiety and he talks about the fact that if our identity is really in Christ, that will help us to not be afraid of things and help us to not have a lot of anxiety. And that was just a really brilliant four minutes. And then, I don't know, maybe 20 episodes on, we had Casey Crawford on. And Casey's like, dude, I got to tell you, first time I'm on the podcast, but I've been wrestling with this Phil Vischer podcast, which I love. But, you know, I see a lot of great leaders in the Bible, you know, with some level of anxiety. I see Jesus, you know, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. I see, you know, David kind of stressed out. So, you know, what does anxiety look like? And so we looked at that a bit in that podcast, but he's not an expert on it. Uh, fortunately, you are. You've been a pastor, a trauma, and a hospice chaplain. I mean, talking about areas of massive stress, you've probably actually seen people sweat blood. And now you're an author and a teacher. You've written a book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, which sits at this intersection of psychology and theology, and it's incredibly applicable to the lives of faith-driven entrepreneurs. And so based on what you've included in your book, what are the common patterns you've seen for anxiety in leaders? What are the unique generators of anxiety that, that you've identified for leaders? How do you process this all specifically for entrepreneurs, please? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Obviously, it's a big question too. But, you know, as a general rule, the best thing, first of all, is to realize that that one word anxiety covers so much territory. So you're talking about Kenya, Nairobi. I've been there a number of times. Most of the people who live in the slums of Nairobi who are just, like you said, these entrepreneurial people. In Nairobi, last time I looked into it, it was like 85% unemployed. So entrepreneurialism in a place like that is essential. It's really the only way out. But most of them are dealing with trauma, uh, have a traumatic upbringing and so on. That's one kind of anxiety. You mentioned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Clinically, he was in acute anxiety. Acute anxiety is life and death. When you know that you're facing a life and death situation, obviously he knew, but the same experience happens to us when we're driving on the interstate and we have to swerve and brake to avoid an accident. Our body kind of puts us in what's clinically called acute anxiety. Most entrepreneurs and most parents deal with a type of anxiety called chronic anxiety. That's the field that I'm trained in. And what's fascinating about chronic anxiety is it's generated by false belief, false need. It's generated by assumptions. So when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not anxious because he has false assumptions. He's anxious because he's facing a painful death. People in the slums of Kenya, their anxiety, they do have chronic anxiety, but that underlying trauma, it has its own rule book. But entrepreneurs, parents, any staff environment, Thanksgiving dinner, anytime you watch a TV show like, sorry, we're four dudes on this, but Gilmore Girls, for example, would be a great example of chronic anxiety. I get chronically anxious watching Gilmore Girls with my daughter because it just drives me crazy. But chronic anxiety is based on assumptions. So if you think about, for example, my need to be impressive my need to always get it right, uh, my need to never make a mistake, to win over everybody I meet. These would be assumptions. These would be false beliefs. And what's fascinating about chronic anxiety, it's the only kind of anxiety that's contagious. That's why I wrote yours and theirs, because in any, any group, Thanksgiving dinner, staff meeting, you know, startup, venture capital conversation, whatever, 
because I have assumptions and you have assumptions, because I have expectations and you have expectations. Anytime you break my expectations, I get what's clinically called chronically anxious. So I appreciate you know what Phil Vicious said, but really chronic anxiety isn't so much worry and fear. That's a misunderstanding, it's, it's reactivity. So the question is, what makes you reactive? That's how you know you're chronically anxious. So I was at an airport in Sacramento last week and there was a huge line for the rental car shuttle, like literally 150 of us. I'd never been in a line that long for a rental car shuttle. Finally, the shuttle shows up and three guys walk out of the airport just in time. And you can see they think they can skip the line. Well, an expectation I have because of my upbringing is everybody waits their turn. Nobody gets ahead. And because they violated my expectation, I caught the anxiety. I then got reactive, which in my case makes me look bigger. And I called them out in front of everybody. Hey, hey, hey. I actually yelled at these guys. This is last week, by the way. This isn't like way back when I was a sinner. This is like recent. And uh, I called a meeting. I made sure that everybody knew that these guys were cheating. You know, none of it ended well, but this is reactivity. And so entrepreneurs, workplace, home place, raising kids, this is the garden variety anxiety that everyone faces. I first learned about it when I was a trauma chaplain. It's changed my life. And as a pastor, that's my vocation. I'm primarily a pastor. Uh, it was phenomenal to me when I discovered that chronic anxiety is based on false belief. Then in every real and visceral way, the gospel helps us uh, lower our anxiety. So yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell, and I'm happy to chase it wherever you'd like to go from there. Well, I mean, there's so many different places. Um, Max Anderson's been a frequent guest on the podcast, and he talks about the fact that entrepreneurs are 50% more likely to having a mental health condition and two times more likely to suffer from depression and ADHD. And so entrepreneurship can be a really stressful environment. And there are a bunch of things I want to work in. I think maybe Rusty and William will take us there about, gosh, what is it like to be a trauma chaplain? And what does that teach you about humanity and life and faith and peace? And there's a lot there. But first on the entrepreneurship side, as an entrepreneur, you need to fundraise. You need to take on risk. You need to make critical decisions. And anxiety seems to be oftentimes a signal that something is wrong and something needs attention, but maybe not. How do you process as an entrepreneur these feelings that you're having? And what's a framework to be able to kind of deconstruct them in the moment? You talked about that with the guys, you know, with the rental car bus. How does an entrepreneur, when they feel these waves coming on, how do you kind of just like, okay, here's what's going on. I'm either, and you just, because you just said, it's not that you're afraid of something, you're reacting to something. Yeah. Give us a yeah. framework as an entrepreneur when we feel these waves come on to help us great. process real time. A great question. You know, let's say you're an entrepreneur, you need to raise some money, you're having a meeting with a bunch of venture capitalists. That kind of anxiety is generally healthy. That would be more of a public speaking anxiety, kind of a adrenaline that you really need to do a good job. But then there's this chronic anxiety, and it has five markers to it, five indicators. Uh, control, when you have to be in control. So the difference between that good energy of presenting well versus the need to control every outcome in that venture capital meeting. So one's control, one's perfection, the need to always do it perfectly. One is always knowing the answer when someone has a question. The fourth one is always being there for others when they're hurting. And the fifth one is people's approval. So it's control, perfection, having the answer, being there for others and people's approval. Every human being is triggered when we don't get up to any of these five. So 
if an entrepreneur is in that venture capital meeting, or maybe they're doing a job interview and trying to recruit someone, or whatever the situation is, you know, a lot of anxiety is actually healthy, but when it crosses into needing to do it perfectly, you never get that false need. That's what makes you anxious is instead of saying, you know what, I did that well, or instead of saying, for example, in entrepreneur world, you know, you take a perfectionist, they believe the lie that they're supposed to get it perfectly right every time the first time, even though they've never done it before. So they don't get that A plus. And then what happens next is they end up replaying in their mind. They beat themselves up. Their inner critic moves into condemnation and they can't rest. They can't mentally rest. And then they can't be present to their loved ones because they're busy trying to attain that perfection they'll never get. Another one just to flesh out, because this is one of mine, being there for others. If somebody somewhere is hurting, I have this compulsion to rush in. And I think it's about that person. I even, honestly, guys, I even blame Jesus for it. I, I even claim that Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor, carry one another's burdens. But what I'm not aware of is it's actually my incessant need to be needed that's being like driven rather than God actually leading me by God's Spirit to help someone. So the first step, and this is a deeper probably tool than we can do on a podcast, but the first step is to start to get to know which of the big five is your driver. For some of us, it's all five. Most of us, it's a few. One of them for me is having the answer. If somebody asks somebody a question, like even on this podcast, if one of you asks the other one a question, I will feel compelled. Actually, I did it during the promo when you guys were talking about Kenya. I had to stop myself from saying, I've been to Kenya. Like, what is that? What's that incessant need in me to have the answer? That's I know that feeling. I know that feeling. By the way, that feeling is going to serve you well during the lightning round. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, hopefully, unless I don't know, and then I'll get really anxious. I wanted to jump in about Gilmore Girls, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> well, uh, I also host a podcast and my 15-year-old daughter just joined me and we did a whole episode on anxiety and Gilmore Girls. So yeah, you can chase that for a good time. Oh my goodness. In 100%. All right, I'm, I'm going to steer us in another direction. Uh, the best books are those that people write about what they know. And so I'm assuming that you wrote your book on managing leadership anxiety, that it could have had a, a third title, which is not just yours and theirs, but also mine. Of course, yeah. Take us through your journey with anxiety and how it got you to a place to write a book. Yeah, well, great question. Yeah, I graduated from college. I needed a job for a year. I kind of stumbled into chaplaincy because they were hiring and paying and didn't realize it would change my life. But, you know, I am kind of entrepreneurial. I'm driven. I like innovation. I like a lot of ideas. But what's interesting about trauma chaplaincy is all of those skills become liabilities in the face of grief and loss. You know, grief and loss is actually about, rather than being proactive, it's actually the capacity to restrain yourself. And so that year as a chaplain, I attended to, a, you know, 250, 300 deaths in that year. You know, dozens of times a day, people asking me to beg God for a miracle. Like, you think about chaplaincy, it's so intense. No one ever calls a chaplain in when they're bored and just want to watch TV together. It's always at the worst moment of their life. And that's really, I was 24, I was very young, and that's where I discovered my anxiety. I never would have described myself as an anxious person, especially as an Aussie, Australians, we work really hard to look like we're fine. And so under the surface of my awareness were all of these expectations, all these assumptions, all these false needs that when I'm in a room where somebody is actively dying, all of these things under the surface are bubbling up and trying to get me to do something 
say something. Like, so for example, one of my assumptions would be, I believe I'm supposed to make people feel better. But when you're in a room and someone's dying, that's too big. No human being can speak to it or do anything to take away death. And it really taught me how do I actually enter someone's pain then I got really sophisticated. I was trained in a study of anxiety called systems theory. That's what I go around the world teaching people now. And what's interesting is how when you're chronically anxious, it actually puts you in a false reality. So when I was in line at the rental car, I was no longer just another customer in line. I'm now judge, jury, and executioner. I'm in a whole different reality. And so that's why I train people because I, I have bet my whole life that Jesus sets us free and we relate to God in concrete reality, but chronic anxiety puts us in a false reality. You see it all through the Bible. You see it in Judas. You see it when James and John are bickering to Jesus. This false reality is all in Scripture. But that's what I noticed most when I was a chaplain, how often I was in a room with someone who was suffering, and my chronic anxiety was giving me a false gospel. Steve, you've got to say something. You've got to do something. You've got to make it better. And learning to notice it, get underneath it and invite God down to the deep wells of my life. That was profound for me. And so I've been a pastor 26 years. It's how I've pastored. What's interesting for me is I handed my church over at Christmas to a young lead pastor. I'm now an entrepreneur. I now do what you guys are coaching on. I'm traveling the world, teaching anxiety and managing my own financial anxiety, trying to figure out what do I offer, all of this stuff, because I'm only 10 months into being full-time in this. So I kind of have a foot in both camps, but that's really where it started for me. It had to be tough as a pastor, just opening up yourself to your congregation and to others about your own anxiety. I'm interested, you know, how did that come about? You know, what a great question, Rusty. I, I have discovered that if I can just be exactly human-sized in front of my congregation, if I can enjoy God in front of my people, it relieves me because I do think a lot of pastors carry a false expectation to be the example. And I guess my question would be, yeah, we are the example, but example of what? And I do think too many pastors and too many congregants kind of expect their pastor to be the example of like the certain model successful Christian. I would rather just be an example of a human-sized follower of Jesus. So I shared my doubts, my fears, my anxieties very openly uh, as a lead pastor for 16 years. And our whole culture of our church was a culture of openness. Because if you bring your anxiety out to the surface, it kind of dissolves it. If you keep it hidden, it grows. It acts a lot like shame. It acts a lot like sin. So my job as a pastor was to create a culture where the pastor is like the chief of anxiety, and now the congregants can share theirs too. And I was just very fortunate that when I was hired, the elders understood that that's what I would do, and they welcomed it. It was incredible. So I had an incredible leadership that I worked for that liked this vision of a human-sized congregation. You know, what I say is we're human-sized followers of a supernatural God, but we get anxious when we think we're supposed to be supernatural. It, just to get theological for you guys, the reason we get anxious is we actually reach into God's job and we start doing God's job for God. So that control, perfection, having the answer, these five are actually the five core attributes of God. Anytime we try to be in control instead of just doing something well, uh, ordered, like the human size of control is order, the human size of perfection is well, and so on. So anytime we try to cross from human to God, we get anxious. Mm. So 
I want to go into your a little bit on your book about group anxiety, but I want to ask you a question that I think you're probably well, well suited to answer. So at least in the United States, it's almost become fashionable for people to say they have anxiety, right? We're just seeing it, you know, Williams in a business now that, you know, trying to get a business off the ground where he's, you know, chaplaincy and helping others. Um, and, while anxiety is real and we know that, you know, sometimes I wonder if we don't have a health system or other things that are just trying to continually pump into our culture, you know, hey, anxiety, 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 let, let us take care of that. And you know what, if you've got it, okay, that's good. But even more so, let us take care of it. Is, is that an accurate perception that I've got? It's a big topic. It's definitely worth longer than we probably had to chat about. My overall take is that culture now is more comfortable talking about what we all always faced but didn't know we had or didn't know how to talk about. So if you go back to the greatest generation, we often talk about, look, they went and tackled Hitler and rightly named. What we don't talk about is how many of those incredible men came home and drank everyone under the table and abused people. No, I'm not saying everybody did. I'm not making a blanket, but there was this underhanded trauma response because no one in that generation could admit, I need help because they tackled Hitler. I mean, how, why would you need help at home? So I do think each generation is becoming more aware and having more conversation. I'm sure you're right, Rusty, that there is a pendulum swing. There's no question, like if chronic anxiety is contagious, then social media is the contagion spreading agent. Our reactivity is through the charts on social media. January 6th insurrection can largely be described through the science of chronic anxiety. A lot of those people ended up in the Capitol. They were almost surprised they were there. They just got kind of caught up. That's because chronic anxiety is contagious. So we are catching anxiety from each other. I appreciate the younger generation's vocabulary. I think they're much more able to talk and help, like I'm a Gen Xer help us talk about it. I think the interesting question maybe we could tackle is resilience. Are we becoming less resilient? Because I don't mind if we're talking about it so long as our resilience is still intact. And that's, I think that's the bigger question. Okay, so talk to us about group anxiety. Right, so if I have assumptions about myself and about you, you have assumptions about me, then our anxiety just spreads freely between us. Any married couple has experienced how anxiety can escalate in a fight. And the general rule is the most reactive person or the most anxious person in any room has the most power. So you'll often see if a CEO is trying to lead a new initiative and that one person is a skeptic, they're what we call a yeah, butter. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? Then their anxiety can infect the rest of the optimistic team if the leader is not careful. So I train leaders and actually entire teams how to pay attention to anxiety in a group because if everyone's committed to helping everyone stay human-sized, the team health goes through the roof, staff turnover down. And so what you're looking for is patterns of behavior and certain indicators. So we have, again, a bit more than maybe this podcast, we have 31 indicators that a team is anxious. One example would be when there's triangulation. Triangulation happens anytime three or more people are in a relationship that only should have two people. So... You know, Rusty, if I talked about you to Henry and William, 
I'm triangulating. I'm not talking to you. A lot of people don't have the emotional maturity to talk to each other. So they talk about each other. That's a very simple indication that the culture is anxious. Because anytime I talk about you and not to you, or anytime I talk about you differently than the way I talk to you, I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to make the people I talk to anxious. And when you find out about it, you'll be anxious. So there's 31 indicators like that that we look for in any organization. And then the other thing we're looking for is recurring patterns of behavior in any team. You take a staff that's worked together for a year, and anyone listening to this can answer the following questions. Who on your staff uses the most words in a meeting? It's always the same person. Who's always the first one to speak up? Who never speaks unless they're called upon? And who has their own secret meeting after the meeting? Now, these four questions just indicate that over time, anxiety puts any group into a predictable recurring pattern of behavior. Because your listeners already know the answers. They, they already know, oh man, John says the most words and Sally has her own meeting after the meeting. That's because these behaviors become predictable. Also in marriages or raising kids, parents and children and husbands and wives fall into predictably anxious patterns together. So your average marriage what you fight about might change, but the pattern of your fight, who starts it, who escalates it, who needs space, who smothers, that's predictable. And so someone with my training with systems theory, we can come into an organization, only takes us a few minutes to uncover these predictable patterns. And my job is to help people vow to break some, like obviously some predictable patterns are very healthy, laughter, playfulness, teamwork, encouragement. These are healthy, predictable patterns, but to try to look at the toxic ones and help resolve them. And really the role is you're trying to put the anxiety back on the person who's generating it. Oftentimes in an organization, especially with a CEO entrepreneur, who's a big personality, and maybe their big personality got the company five years in, and now they're trying to establish. What happens is that CEO's habits tend to generate anxiety on the staff but maybe that CEO is like, well, you just have to deal with it. That's the way it is. And the staff's like, well, we wish you'd deal with it. Like you're wearing us all out. And so sometimes they have to come in and help everybody without blame, carry the right amount of responsibility and anxiety each. This episode is brought to you by, well, it's brought to you by us. Faith Driven Entrepreneur is a ministry dedicated to resourcing and connecting Christian business leaders across the world with great content and deep community. You've already landed at the content piece, but if you'd like to learn more about how you can get connected to other like-minded entrepreneurs with no cost and no catch, just go visit faithdrivenentrepreneur.org backslash groups. Until then, we'll keep the content flowing. Let's get back to the show. I want to ask a question, but make a point at the same time. I think so many times we might not as leaders have the language to talk about this, right? We know there, there's tension, but we don't know what to call it and how to get at it. Right. Um, any easy tricks there for a leader? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not the only person that's written about this, but I put a whole vocabulary in the book because if you can name it, you can tame it. Like everyone's experienced triangulation, but maybe you didn't know that's what it was called. Again, to William's point, why do we love Gilmore Girls? It's nothing but triangulation. So now that you know that you can look for it, you can invite 
the people in the triangle to de-triangulate, have direct conversations. So on our church staff, we have two behavioral values. They're dead simple. Value number one, when at all possible, we talk to each other before we talk about each other. So on my church staff, it's no problem that you talk about me. No problem at all, especially if you need to vent. But I trust that you first talk to me. The second value is the way we talk to each other is congruent with the way we talk about each other. Because a lot of people vent and then you get in the room and they shapeshift. That's anxiety. So yeah, there is a whole vocabulary. It's very simple. This is not complicated. It's just about noticing patterns. And I would say, Rusty, a lot of people actually didn't realize that there was another way to go, that they could actually be free of these patterns. Yeah, it's interesting. Steve, I, I want to go to, you know, I'm thinking about some people listening that, you know, obviously the number one approach is to read your entire book and take detailed notes. So step one, some people may not jump on that. I don't know. Right. I'm curious if you're a leader right now, I'm guessing everyone's nodding along at some level or to something, right? No one's saying, I have no problem with this. I'm really sad I tuned in. You're leading an organization right now. What's the first couple of questions or maybe first couple of actions that you would say, hey, you need to understand this or you need to ask yourself these questions? Just wh where would you start if someone had, you know, hey, I'm taking this seriously, but, you know, I've only got half an hour to really think through this. That's a great where, question. Where, where do I start? Yep. And, and one of the challenges of entrepreneurialism is the pressure to do, do, do and be efficient. And unfortunately, this is not an efficient path. So if you only have half an hour, I would actually say, don't open the door to this. But if you have half an hour a week, then I'd say, yep, absolutely open the door. This kind of thinking and approach takes several months. But step one is learn to notice when you are spreading anxiety. That's it. What are the signs that you are anxious when maybe you don't even know you're anxious? The simplest way to know you're anxious is to ask somebody who cares about you how they know you're anxious before you do. And this is especially true for entrepreneurial, mission-driven, others-focused leaders. We are usually the last in the room to know when we're not well. But anxiety is like poker. We all have tells. And so others can see it before us. By the time a child is nine, they can tell you your anxiety tells. So that's number one. Number two is deeper, is can you commit to not spreading anxiety anymore and not catching it when others are spreading it? If chronic anxiety is contagious, then if the leader can be the one to say, you know what, as much as it's upon me, I'm going to try to not spread it and I'm going to try to not catch it. So what that looks like is usually I can tell I'm anxious because I'm blaming someone else. I'm irritated. Like those rental car guys, that was just evidence that I was anxious. I'm blaming them. Ah, you know, this kind of thing. But in systems theory, uh, systems theory has zero interest in blame. It's another thing I love about it because I think that lines up with the gospel. Paul says one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Systems theory says... Your job is to control yourself. Don't worry about other people. And so typically when I'm doing this stuff, people are always saying, oh, I wish Jim was here. I wish Sally was listening. But really what happens is if your anxiety gets into a pattern, then what are you doing that's contributing to the pattern? So, you know, I'm always on time. I really value promptness. And here'd be a simple pattern. Maybe John is always late and I tend to blame John 
but I'm contributing to the problem because I'm not confronting him. So the problem is John is late. My attempted solution is act like he's not late. And then five times being late in a row, I'm now having an anger fantasy about John. I'm thinking about firing John, but I've never had the courage to just sit down and say, John, here's the deal. And so if I take responsibility for myself rather than blaming John and say, well, what am I doing that might be contributing to John always being late? Well, here's what I'm doing, avoiding conflict, like I always do. I love to avoid conflict. Okay, I can do difficult things because of Christ. I'm going to sit down with John. And I've done this a number of times, William, where I'll say, hey, there's two problems here. Problem number one is you're chronically late. Problem number two is I'm letting you get away with it. And I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I've been letting you get away. That that does not serve you. I'm reasonably angry at you, and I don't like that because I actually like you. I'm getting really petty. Like last time you were late, John, I counted up every minute that you wasted in the room. That's how petty I'm getting. So here's the deal. I'm not going to let you get away with it anymore. If you're late again, big, terrible things are going to happen. Armageddon's going to happen. What's that like for you, John? Like, because I've not been leading you well. That's different than me saying, John, John, you're the problem. So system theory tells you to really focus on how you're the problem. Those would be the two steps I would start with is how do I know when I'm anxious? And then how can I commit to not spreading it and catching it? And I guess that was step three. How do I break the pattern where I'm contributing and feeding into the anxiety? Oh, that does not sound fun. Oh, it's such a great time. On the end of it, so much freedom. So <laughs> that, much freedom after that. That sounds so good and so not fun. Very uh, pastoral of you. I was sitting there remembering one of my favorite pastor, you know, jokes is when they're given this hard sermon about a sin. And of course, everyone's thinking about the five people that need to hear that sermon because they struggle with that. And they're like, if you're thinking of those five people, right. you probably need to pay attention to yourself. You're probably right. the one struggling. Don't send it to other people. Just pay attention. 80 to 90% of systems training is focusing on yourself. And you'll be blown away if you make yourself healthier and more aware and manage your anxiety. You will be blown away how it can infect your organization. It's a gospel value. Jesus' health infected ill health everywhere he went. And that's the same value that systems has. A healthy leader can infect sick people and make them well. And I think if I can just rant as a preacher, what our society is in most desperate need of is healthy Christians, emotionally and spiritually healthy Christians. That's really the best evangelistic tool we have in a culture where people are suspicious about us nowadays. Amen. You know, you said something earlier on in the conversation that I clearly want to ask you about, which is resiliency. And the way you brought it up made me think that there's a resiliency needed within society, maybe within the church that maybe once existed, but might not as much anymore. But I don't want to presume what you're going to say on that topic, but I'm curious to, to hear what your thoughts are about resiliency. I think resiliency is such a fascinating topic, isn't it? I mean, it's such an important topic. But when I study history and these resilient generations, if we go back to the greatest generation, you know, one of my favorite TV shows is Band of Brothers. Oh, it's yeah. such an incredible example, of, like Dick Winters, and he's actually considered a model of system theory leadership. He did not catch anxiety around him and he did not generate it. He was healthy and he made his people better. Like actually Band of Brothers becomes a great model. But I think the advantage that that generation had is they had a worldwide outside pressure, and that's how you know your resiliency. We are recording this podcast right on the heels of Hurricane Ian. If we all went down to Florida, we would see that same resiliency at work on a local level 
But the difference was World War II lasted years. It took over the whole world. Hurricane Ian lasted a couple of days and the impact's going to be months. But that's where you can kind of test human resiliency as these local pockets of struggle and suffering. And then, of course, as a chaplain, right down to the micro struggle of one human who is sick and how are they managing facing death. That's, to me, the only real way to measure resiliency. I was disappointed as a pastor that in America, where we live, it did not feel like culturally COVID humbled us at all. It felt like that was an opportunity for us as Western people to get on our knees and seek God. And I didn't see a whole lot of that happening inside the church or outside the church. You know, a lot of church people love to blame unchurch culture. Kind of drives me crazy as a pastor, because I think Jesus spent most of his critique on religious people. But uh, I didn't see a whole lot of that going on inside the church either. We kind of retrenched into our rights through COVID rather than died to self and sought the face of God. So that was disappointing to me, but I think that's how you find resiliency. So that's interesting to me. So I had a, a, a maybe with some of our listeners, I have a little bit of a different take on that. Mm. There are things about Christian culture that deals with resiliency that does get me. Like there are seven and a half billion of God's image bearers that do not live in the United States. And yet, yeah. and two billion of them profess the name of Christ. Yeah. And yet when major calamities happen to Christ followers around the world, we're not getting on our knees. And we're not mourning, we're not crying, we're not seeing the injustice and seeing what might we do about it. We seem to be much more comfortable and focus on the lives in our immediate periphery. And I think that that's not so bad if you've gotten down on your knees and prayed to God and said, God, how would you have me deal with this injustice? But maybe it's also that we are, maybe you could speak this, is that we are anxiety avoidant and we worry that if we get called into the anxieties that are outside in different countries, that it will trouble our lives. But like you, I mourn the reaction of the church at times and wonder why we are seem to all be coasting to our funeral. But is it because we're trying to avoid anxiety or any, any thoughts you have on that? I think you've nailed it, Henry. I do think it is an avoidant issue. I think one of the massive cultural values in Western culture is comfort and another one is safety. Whereas the gospel compels us to discomfort and danger for the sake of Jesus and God's people and lost people. So, I mean, I do think there is a compassion fatigue with globalization and global news. It's an ongoing barrage of brokenness. So which of the many broken places in the world do you tackle? That's genuine. But I'm with you. I think as a general rule, Western culture is discipling us more than the gospel in the West. Again, man, that's a blanket statement. So of course there's exceptions, but I do think that's what we're up against is Western culture has a gospel and it says, make as much as you can, be comfortable, be safe, you know, shop for a school based on the crime rates. But the gospel says, no, no, comfort zone is massively overrated. It's not good for your soul. That's why, you know, I heard you guys talk about Kenya. Like I've been to Kenya, I've been to a number of developing nations and you talk about where the gospel's thriving, innovation, the way I grow being around there. I think that's where salvation's found. But I do think you've put your finger on a big issue there. With the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, if we can get through that third level, we get this investment return that at a minimum is 30-fold. I'm an investor, man. If I can get a 10-bagger, man, I'm high-fiving anybody who will hold up their hand to me. But 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. 
But man, the worries of the world, that's uh, difficult. And I'll tell you, you know, you get called into what's going on in Eastern Europe or called into what's going on in Ethiopia, you can easily not look at that because we're focused on having, you know, time to fit in nine holes. So I'm just trying to understand if we indeed are healthy, does helping people who are suffering through a financial or spiritual poverty or whatever that are maybe not as healthy, does that make us more healthy or does that make us more weak? How, how do you think about that dynamic? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about anxiety and leadership. You're saying as we are strong and as we are healthy, we can then engage with other people that are broken and have anxiety and we can help to heal them. Does that make us stronger and make us more healthy or does that draw us into the anxiety and actually, while some of us rubs off on them, a bunch of them rubs off on us. And we return from the staff meeting we had where there's some anxiety, a little bit more damage from the experience. Or we return from a mission trip to Croatia, a little more damage to the experience. How do you have those type of interactions where you emerge healthier instead of weaker in both instances? Yeah, I think the work that I'm calling for, you think about trauma chaplaincy, I would do these 28-hour overnight shifts in the hospital, just like medical residents do, would sleep overnight and be on call all night. And there'd be, not very often, but occasionally you get four or five or six deaths in a shift. What a year of chaplaincy did was deepen my capacity to step into pain and be present to people and present to God in pain and suffering. I think the vision I'm calling us toward is to deepen our capacity and so the only reason it would make us weaker is if we do have some kind of idolatry that's unaddressed. Like if you are in a chronically, systemically poverty situation like the slums of Nairobi, like that's a tough place to go work, chronic long-term poverty. But if you have this false belief that you're supposed to make everyone better, it will make you weaker because it's going to reinforce this false belief and you're going to then do more and burn out. But you talk about a guy like Father Gregory Boyle, incredible Catholic priest in Compton. He's put 30 years in Compton, Los Angeles. He's probably gone to more teenage funerals than anyone has ever. And he is about the most joyful, alive human you can meet because he is there to learn and grow in Christ, not to live out of his false anxiety. So it's a great question, but I, I wish I had a simpler answer. No, that was a great answer. Thank you. Outstanding. And as you said, we've asked a lot of complex questions. Now we're going to ask some really simple, easy questions, okay? Excellent. So it's lightning round time. You answer quickly, we ask you quickly, and they'll be more fun than anything else. So I'm going to kick it off. Um, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. Is that appropriate for me to say, or should only Australians say it to each other? Oh, you can say it. I think what you'd, your job is to say, Aussie, 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 and then we get to respond, oi, oi, oi. I, I'd be careful doing both. You might end up in a bar fight. <laughs> All right, that's good. Good, good, good to know. Um, so, your preference, rugby or cricket? Cricket, but but All they're right. not competitors. Those two sports don't compete against each other. But cricket for me. Okay, I was going to go. So, Rusty took one kind of for me, but I was going to go rugby or Australian rules football. Aussie rules football, just because the state I was raised in. Some states play Aussie rules and some play rugby. But if you're talking the All Blacks, New Zealand with a haka, rugby every time. I'm reading a book right now on the All Blacks called Legacy, talking about their team dynamic and fighting with a purpose and about how they small country has been able to be so successful. New Zealand is one of the most astonishing countries in the world. And New Zealanders, I'll say as an Aussie, we have a big rivalry with New Zealand. They're incredible human beings. I've got one that's complex, but I'm excited to do it in 30 seconds. Pastorally, obviously, you just said healthy. Identity in Christ is the antidote to these things. 
if you had one thing to pass along to our entrepreneurs that they may not be seeing or they're missing in the gospel or in in the scripture that could help them re-anchor that, what would it be? John says in 1 John 3.20 or 3.19 and 20, John actually gives us a way to be at peace with Christ. He says, this is how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. Even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And I think what happens is our inner critic condemns us, that need for perfection, that need for control. I think Jesus died to release us from these false needs so that we can be exactly human-sized in the presence of God. So what I do, I practice daily. I practice containment with that inner voice of condemnation. I ask God to examine my false beliefs so that I give God the first word in my life and the last word in my life. Because that's what you do when you're in the presence of a king. You know, I'm an Australian. We have King Charles now. If he were to usher me to Buckingham Palace, I'm not just running my mouth. He speaks first, I get to speak, and then he speaks last. Jesus is my sovereign king. So I'm trying to live my life where what Jesus says about me supersedes what I think about myself. And that's what I think a lot of entrepreneurs are lacking is this this pressure that God is not calling you to carry. And listen, there's a false belief in entrepreneurs. I have to live under this pressure so we can be successful. You will thrive more and be more productive and more profitable if you are relaxed internally. Uh, William, you're cheating. That's a deep question. You're cheating. Oh, but it was so worth it. I've been thinking it for a while and I didn't see any place else to fit it in. So it showed up in the lightning round. I I feel like I should get some kind of credit or rebate. That was not lightning round. Oh, but it was so good. My whole body, my whole body sank. I like changed my whole, ah. Well, you can see, you know, I typically do a full day workshop. Like that would be my typical offer. And you can see why, because people need time to hear this, talk about it with each other. So this is obviously a deeper process. If people want to dig in more, they want to set a few hours so we can, you know, get them talking to each other about it. Cause that's really how we change. So now we've got two minutes. I got to end with a fun one. Most anxious disciple. What a great question. Uh, Probably Peter, but his anxiety, his reactivity made him get bigger. So it's easier to see his anxiety. For some people, their anxiety makes them smaller. They get really quiet. There's no question Judas would have been very anxious, but Peter's anxiety is the most easy to see in the Gospels. Foot and mouth disease, that whole thing. <laughs> got it. I guess got to add, John's anxiety is more insidious where he he's like, hey, Peter and I ran to the tomb and I want everyone to know that I outran Peter. Like that's anxiety. That's bragging <laughs> is usually anxiety. Oh, I love it. Okay. Well, speaking of, you gave us a great scripture a second ago, but we love to end our show by going back to God's word. And if you had something to share with us, maybe from today, or maybe something you've studied that just coming alive to you in a new way from God's word, we would invite you to do that with our audience. Yeah. Yeah. First John 3, 19 and 20, that's the main passage I'd want to leave us with. I just think there's the gospel right there. And the idea that God supersedes my opinion And that's how I live by faith, because I have an inner critic and a voice of condemnation like everyone does. But that's how I truly relax into the grace of God. And I guess tied with that, I just keep thinking of Psalm 139, just the way David invites God to search him. David's like, search me, Lord, show me my ways. And I love that even in the Old Testament, David is saying, I may not know myself, but you know me. So show me any ways where I can repent So when I see the scriptures teaching us to confess and repent, that to me is just a pathway to freedom. When I hear repent, I think, oh, I get to be free. 
And so I'm often praying Psalm 139 and inviting God to show me where I need to repent. What false belief am I living for that's keeping me bound? Amen. Amen. So grateful for you. So grateful for your work. Thank you for spending some time with us. Yep. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a good time. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet for an hour a week with your peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley, our theme song is In the House by David Crowder. 